At American University, we don't just hope for change, we create it. We don't just dream of a better world, we make it a reality. With a graduate degree from AU, you'll access expert faculty and connections throughout DC to develop skills and experience to turn your passion into purpose. And that purpose can make all the difference in your career. Discover the difference a degree makes at American.edu slash gradschool. Hello, and welcome to the TFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine, and today I'm joined by Alex Stewart. Good morning. That is incredibly quiet. <laughs> What's wrong with you? Get closer to your microphone. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful levels. Um, today's episode is Alex and I... Uh, well, me asking questions that listeners have asked. Easy job. Alex asking, uh, answering questions that listeners have. I'm not even doing my job well at all, am I? Can't even, can't even say what we're doing. It's a tactical questions answered podcast. Listeners have been kind enough to submit a series of questions uh, from which we have selected a, uh, a chosen few um, to put to Alex and to discuss. So uh, all that's left to say is that this episode is supported by The Athletic, the best place to read about football online. Visit theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO and get a 30-day free trial and 50% off an annual subscription. Asim Munshi and Tim Memo. Asim asks, with the likes of Martinez, Lukaku, Turam, Plea, Werner, Poulsen and Jimenez and Jota all thriving across Europe's top leagues, are we seeing the return, are we seeing the return to the days in which t- the two striker systems were fashionable? This reminds me of a video we released during the World Cup last year. Uh, Tim Memo says, why aren't front twos like Inters more common? It seems to be overlooked, especially in the Premier League, despite its historical success there. Um, where do you want to start with that then? It might be a good uh, maybe to start with um, just explaining the benefits and the negatives, the, the, the pros and cons of a, of a two-man front line. So the pros and cons, like all football things, are kind of in part related to what the opposition are doing, um, which in itself is a kind of slightly... A, are you drinking a beer? I was until it burst all over my face. It's 20 past 11 in the morning. Well, <laughs> I start listen, talking but, about football tactics and you reach for alcohol. This is Beer 52 sent us some free beers. And right. I can't help myself. Why don't Boost send me some free <laughs> boosts? <laughs> Boost, do go, sorry, I'm just if you're listening. myself. Do go on. Okay. Uh, this is, this is a, a, like a night out for me. Oh, gosh. That's really sad. Yeah. Um, so a front two, for example, if you're playing a front two against a back three, that's not necessarily great because they will have one defender over um, and your wing backs can push up onto wide midfielders, et cetera, et cetera. And that's one of the reasons that, that back threes were developed was to cope with two men front lines and to have a man over. So it, all of these things are always dependent on what the opposition are doing and, and trying to disrupt what they're doing. But the benefit, I think, of a front two is that you have two committed strikers in the area. You don't need to commit men forwards to midfield from midfield quite so much, which can mean that you can be more 
defensively compact. So, for example, we see that with uh, Atletico Madrid over the last few seasons. They haven't had an out-and-out front two, more like a striker with an attacking midfielder playing behind them. Mm. But effectively, you can then still have your two banks of four, but retain players who are outballs, who can attack the channels, who can hold the ball up and bring other players in. A lot of these front twos that are mentioned are two different types of striker as well. So if you look, for example, at Big Timo Werner and Yusuf Paulsen, it is often big and little. Uh, and, and you go back, you know, the sort of the Niall Quinn, Kevin Phillips thing mm. of, you know, one massive guy to win the ball in the air and then a smaller, more lithe striker to get on the end of those flicks and so mm. on. So Paulsen, for example, is very, very good at holding the ball up. He's very good at taking the ball into the channel and bringing it back, whereas Werner's much more sort of playing off the shoulder, looking to run in behind. And and so they they work well. I think the the downside to having two strikers largely is, is twofold. It can lead to a sense of over-committing forwards, mm. um, no pun intended. So you are then perhaps playing against, you know, if you've got a team that's playing uh, a 4-3-3, if your wingers are pu- pushing up to support a two-man striker, that leaves a two versus three in midfield. That's not necessarily ideal. The other thing is actually, I think, just the rise in the fashionability of particularly inverted wingers, but the four-three-three generally. And it's one of those instances where sometimes I think the the number of strikers on the pitch is is being uh, circumscribed by where they want other players to be. Yeah. And so by default, that means you can only have one striker if you're playing. And then, of course, the role of that striker is changing. So if you look at the way Liverpool do it, you've got a striker that mm. drops off a lot. So the attacking threat is coming from these wide, quick players who push inside. You, and you would almost call Mane and Salah the strikers. In that yeah, in, in some regards. Can so, I ask two uh, sort of questions off the back of this? The first one is, do you th- I'll ask them both. The first one is, do you think that given the type of formations that football teams are playing, the wide attacking threats, um, Mane and Salah is a pretty good example of that, um, and a few other contributing factors, that those genuine wide midfield players of the 90s, you know, you're thinking of David Beckham, Ryan Giggs, for example, don't really exist anymore because they're either they're either genuine midfielders who can be used to kind of uh, squash up the middle Mm. or they're wide attacking threats. And the second one is, do you think because there are fewer two-man front uh, pairings or strikers nowadays, in in, in the Premier League at least, that whilst there isn't a reduction in goals in football games, there is more of a spread of who's scoring the goals, which is why it's harder for you know, traditional number nines who are playing up front on their own now to reach the, the heights of Shearer in terms of their goal-scoring record because the goals are spread around amongst the other attacking players much more than they would have been when the emphasis was on the two players playing together. I think I think that second point is probably true to a degree. I mean, you still have number nines who take someone like Lewandowski, for example, who is largely playing as a sole striker, sometimes maybe with someone like Müller in support. But Super freak though, right? Yeah, super freak. So, you know... That if, but then was Shearer a super freak? To a degree, yes. Um, but I, I do think that's partly the case. And also this idea that some number nines are increasingly expected to drop back and participate in build-up and allow these inverted wingers to push inside. And, and that's why, you know, for example, with Liverpool, you see more of an equitable 
distribution of goals scored across that front three. Um, you don't necessarily have a midfielder who's pushing up quite so well to to do that. And so the, the nine as the central player is the one who's dropping in. Um, I think in terms of the wide midfielder question, I mean, someone like Giggs could have played as as that kind of inverted winger, almost mm. certainly. I mean, he had he had pace, dribbling ability. He was a, a good finisher, so he would have been fine like that. James Milner, though, he started on the um, on the wing, didn't he? But not, I suppose. It, I mean, it was called the wing, but the kind of more reserved wide midfield role, which just other than in a four four two, doesn't really exist anymore. No, I mean, it, it would still, I think in some instances, teams maybe play a 4-1-4-1. Mm. Um, again, part of the issue with this is that you're you're also looking at a defensive shape. So because pressing is, you know, in vogue to a large degree, you're, you're looking at teams who want to be able to press aggressively across the front line. Mm. And that's easier with three players than it is with two. And it's easier if the wider players are starting higher up the pitch yeah. because passing to a fullback is one of the kind of most obvious pressing triggers because you're playing against a touchline. Yeah. So if those players are starting further back, then they're less able to engage that press. It does work, for example, if you're playing against a team that, that uses wingbacks. Yes, if they're using wingbacks, there's a likelihood that they'll probably have a man over in midfield or they'll be playing three against four at the back. So they mm. have an advantage too, but you can match up fairly well there, I think. Do you know what's interesting? I watched a, um, I think it was a Monday night football episode on Sky where Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher were looking at players who are excellent at deep crosses. And the modern example they were using was, was Kevin De Bruyne, um, and they were comparing him to two players, Steven Gerrard, who also started on the wing in his early days, mm. and David Beckham. Um, and they were talking about how uncommon it is, or certainly how difficult it is, to get that little bit of whip and curve on the very end yeah. of a long pass. Um, and using yeah, Kevin De Bruyne as the example of, of someone in the Premier League who, who's very successful at achieving that. Now, it's funny that he is a central midfielder essentially or in a kind of attacking central midfielder yeah. rather than that right winger that Gerard and and um, I mean I guess Gerard to a certain extent is the middle between those two but David Beckham was pretty much always just playing on the right of midfield and making those sorts of plays I like the idea that that has that play still exists but has shifted responsibility to another position yeah well there's two points to make and I think that's that's an astute observation and we, I remember when we we did look at Sheffield United. I know everyone whinges that we don't look at Sheffield United, but we have talked about them on podcasts before rather than make a video. And it's something that Oliver Norwood last season in the championship was doing an awful lot from the kind of, I suppose, sort of inside right, right half space position and, and getting balls that would whip across, but but not from as wide out, yeah. not, not doing it from the touchline, and not doing it from closer to the byline, but doing it back and in. And you're looking for the ball to curve away the from the goalkeeper, minute. kind of at the last minute. So I don't you, know how they do that. Um, well, technically, I've got no idea. This is I why mean, I, I mean, I know how to curve a, a ball. ball. Yeah. I can curve a ball. Okay. I, but, to, but to have the ball travel in a straight direction... Yeah. for 20 yards and then curve it's for the last five. It's almost like they're professionals who've practised an awful <laughs> lot. 
Um, so yes, I think, I think that kind of crossing is, is useful. I think a lot of teams who look to take it to the byline or, or cross from wider positions, particularly following the sort of Man City example, in a more advanced crossing position are actually looking for pullbacks low across the box. And there is, and it's an interesting thing. I remember this when, when Moyes was managing Man United, this sense that, that somehow teams that rely on crosses are in some way inferior. I or, think that was because of the a particular game against Fulham yeah, where they, in it the was second half they made 54 crosses or something yeah. and, and lost the game. Right. So They I, were just a bad team. You know, it may be that central defenders are better in the air. Goalkeepers probably are taller than they used to be as an aggregate. So crosses are easier to deal with, I would suggest in some regards. And therefore creating space through movement, crossing from positions that are not necessarily as expected. And James Ward-Prowse is another good example of, particularly with a dead ball, but of somebody who can cross from that kind of right half space position and get real whip on the ball. And if you've mm. got quick strikers that are playing right on the line, that are then looking to get in on that, that that's more dangerous clearly than a sort of floated cross that comes in. But also you have to consider whether it is in part because you're not playing with two strikers, one of whom is a Niall Quinn. You know, when, mm. when those sorts of strikers were more in vogue, then I'm trying to think back to when, when Southampton had Graziano Pella. I, I think we, we did play longer crosses from wider positions, particularly from fullbacks overlapping because he was six foot four and really, really good in the air. So incredibly attractive, incredibly attractive. But he was really good for that season. Wasn't he? Yeah. 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 He was, he, he was, he looks like a, a, I don't want to linger on his appearance. It's not important, but it, he looked like a Greek statue. Yeah. He looked like he was made of marble. Yeah. No, he's ridiculously handsome. I felt like even, you know, even people who have incredible muscle tone that if you sort of touch their breast, it'll go in a little bit. Mm. But with him, I feel but like your him. fingernail would break if you touch the skin. <laughs> Like like Edward from Twilight. Yeah. You know? Who's As in the vampire. Oh, okay. I've not Similarly, I've Graziano not seen Pella it. sparkled in the sun. That's, uh, that, that's right. a joke that only some people are going to get. And sure. it's not a very good I'm one. I'm not one of them. Yeah. Um, so I've seen Twilight. Yeah, I mean... I, that look, question was about uh, the two up front. But I feel like uh, it's symptomatic of football for us to spend half the time talking about other things other because things. of how it affects the rest of the team. Do you feel like we've suitably answered uh, Sim and Tim's questions? Yeah, there's just two quick points I want to make. I think that the reintroduction of three at the back as being more popular, I think is part of the reason for an increase in two-man striker teams because it is therefore easier, I think, to play with say five across midfield or four and one. So you still have that degree of cover, but you can have two up front. Um, also, he mentions, Borussia mentioned Gladbach's front two player and Marcus Turam. We've got a Bundesliga video coming out about Marcus Turam. It'll be, it'll have been the weekend just gone when this comes out, I think. And they aren't a conventional front two in quite the same way. Turam's kind of a converted winger. So, there's a lot of movement there and they positionally is he, is he in the kind of remold? Um, I mean, he's not that good yet. No, but um, just in terms of He how probably he... won't ever be that good. But, it, but it's very interesting to see how 
for example, having having looked at him, Gladbach sometimes play with two up front and sometimes play with one and then three behind and Turan plays on the left and that. But when they're playing two up front, very often his runs are quite similar. So he'll make these angled runs that are kind of at a 45 degree angle to the defensive line and then peel across mm-hmm. while Plia, who's a really, really good player, is is kind of occupying a centre-back. And that's a that's an inverted winger's run, but he's doing it as a second striker. And that's one of the reasons that he is able to get through and, and create opportunities. So you've got different types of two-man striker teams that can work effectively. And sometimes it's because one of them isn't necessarily an out-and-out striker. Mm. Okay. Thanks to Tim and Asim. Next up is a question from Slyman. Slyman. On the weekend, Osuana played away at Espanyol and were 2-1 two, uh, two up before they went a man down, but still ran out of four, as 4-2 four winners. Sorry, I'm quite far away. I should have brought my glasses. And just a few weeks ago, Mainz were 1-0 up away at Hoffenheim before going a man down, but they eventually won 5-1. Why are teams finding it more difficult to play against opponents who are down a man? And what are teams who are down a man doing right tactically to still beat their opponents. Thank you, Slyman. What an interesting question. We spoke about this briefly yesterday, didn't we, Alex? And what did you say? I, I got very excited about Mainz. Yeah. Um, so I... Yeah, you liked that game, didn't you? Yeah, that was... I mean, it was fun. Um, so it's... Yes, it's an interesting question. Um, I didn't manage to watch the Osasuna Espanol game, for okay. which I apologise profusely. Sorry, Slyman. There are reasons, but I'm not going to go into them at this point. However, I did watch Mainz Hoffenheim. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was very interesting about it was that Mainz lined up as a kind of 3-4-1-2. And they, Mainz are quite an aggressive pressing side, although actually kind of on aggregate, they're, they're like Bundesliga average. But they, they press high. They're quite an athletic team. They're quite a young team. Right. And just before halftime, they get a midfielder sent off. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of what they do is they had a, sh- a striker playing called Robert Kaisen, who's a Swedish fella. Um, he drops straight back into an attacking midfield position. So even though they've had a player sent off, because this player, Kaisen, is quite versatile, they don't need to then take somebody off and bring somebody else on. They can just change things around. They stopped pressing aggressively high and they stopped zonally pressing in the opponent's half and trying to block off passing lanes and stop the opponent from progressing the ball, Hoffenheim. In the second half, Hoffenheim were, their back line and their goalkeeper were halfway line pretty much the entire time. Mm. Mainz sat back and instead they pressed really, really intelligently, but in a kind of man-oriented way once... Hoffenheim had passed a certain point. What do you mean when you say man-oriented pressing? Right. So what they did basically was they they sat in a in a really wonderfully clear defensive shape, and then when the ball came to a particular person, they pressed that person. So opposition players were when they had the ball, they were the triggers. They were the trigger. So receiving the ball, then you rush forward and press. And are these dangerous players or players who are more likely to give the ball away? A- anyone. Anyone. Um, so this would be the so Hoffenheim were also playing three at the back with wing backs. Um and so if the wing back advanced and received the ball, then the Mainz wing back would 
push out and press them. Right. And once they passed the ball back, they would retreat back into a defensive shape. Okay. Something else that was very interesting was when in the first half, when Mainz still had 11 men, their, their uh, centre-backs were spreading very, very wide. Their wing-backs play incredibly aggressively high up the pitch. In the second half, they kept much more narrow. But what they do is if the ball started to move into the space in front of them, one of the two outer centre-backs would push up to be in line with the defensive midfielder mm -hmm. to press that space. And if the ball then vacated that space, they'd fall straight back into a back three. So... A bit like a cornered crab. Right. So it was this really incredibly precise system of triggers and movements that meant that Hoffenheim were basically encouraged forwards. And as I say, you know, their goalkeeper Bauman is on the halfway line playing passes around. And that made Mainz very, very difficult to break down. But it also meant there was an absolutely enormous space behind Hoffenheim's defensive line. Presumably that's how they scored four more goals. Exactly that. Right. Because they weren't pressing like maniacs anymore, they had a lot more energy and they still, obviously, they're, they're, they're a quick side. So it then meant when the ball was won back, Hoffenheim were really, really close to the Mainz goal. Mm. In or a way maybe that they wouldn't they had, be if they didn't have a player up. Absolutely. Right? And they weren't pressing and being invited on. Okay. And I say pressing as in pushing forwards, not defensive pressing. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you've got two or three Mainz players that are able to basically spring an offside trap or isolate one defender who's hanging back. And they're through on goal. Right. So I think... I mean, this is obviously one example and, and you know, the Mainz coach, whose name I've temporarily forgotten embarrassingly, it's quite an odd name, like Byrick Loser or something. Um, you're going to look it up now. Mm -hmm. um, did a fantastic job at halftime. The players were incredibly disciplined and stuck to what they were supposed to do. And it was, it was a really, really interesting game to watch from a defensive point of view. But as a wider answer to the question, I think when teams are going into games expecting sides to press really high and all of a sudden the team stops doing that and the opposition finds that they suddenly don't have to play through a really aggressive press in the high areas of the pitch close to their own goal, they've suddenly got all of this space to wander forwards into. Mm. And it's like a trick almost like a trick is it a bit like one of those fish that uh buries itself in the sand yeah in the in the sea in the seabed with just its eyes poking out looking at you and as you get closer you think this is safe look at these tiny eyes and then it, it, it reveals itself to be a large there's predator. a there's a snake that has a, a tail appendage that looks like a beetle mm -hmm. oh yeah no, and I've it seen that waves snake. it around and yeah. then the bird comes and thinks oh i can eat this beetle or spider yeah. or whatever it is and then the snake tries to grab it. That's what I try to do with my <clears throat> sort of uh, light-hearted um, uh, public persona. Is oh, to bring right. people in. And when they're in, I start talking to them about serial killers. <laughs> and I trap them in the corner of the bar and go, which, which was your favourite serial killer? And they want to, um, they want to leave. They it was Sandro Schwartz, by the way, is the Mainz coach. Mm. Sandro Schwartz? I, I don't think it is. That's who came up on my phone. Um, I, German I'm footballer. Yeah, I'm pretty he sure. He is the, he, he, oh, he, he last managed Mainz. Oh, uh, why, why does, 
It's all right. I'll, I'll, find, it. I'll find it. Right. It's Akim Bayerlotzer. Oh, yeah. That's Bayerlotzer. Yeah. And Why so, does Sandro's thoughts come up on Google when you... I don't know, mate. Did he used to manage Mainz? Does that, do you know who he is? Um, no, I don't. I, he, he is a German former footballer who last managed Mainz. Okay. So why does... I don't know. Sort understand. your shit out, Google. You've made me look a fool. Yeah. Because that's... Yeah. Um, I didn't know anyway. So I think in that regard, teams can be enticed on. And, and it's, not, it's not necessarily dissimilar to how very compact deep-sitting sides like uh, Atletico Madrid or a Burnley will look to suddenly break forwards, having absorbed mm. large quantities of pressure. But if you go and play those teams, you know that's what's going to happen. And so that's what you prepare for. That's what you build up towards. That's what your coaching is geared around. Whereas if you play certain teams that you expect to press very high and expect to you know, be trying to pin you into an area and you've got to play through that and so on. If you're then suddenly, because of that team going a man down, granted huge areas of the pitch and you're instead faced with this very intelligent, well-positioned mid-block with little pressing triggers, but a very, very good defensive shape, you're, it, it's a conundrum that you haven't been thinking about how to solve. It's quite a specific set be, of circumstances, though, isn't it? I mean, we're yeah. not saying generally that this is the kind of catch-all fix to Don't, winning with 10 men. Abs- no, no. You're, 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 you are statistically disadvantaged. But if your opposition play into your hands and don't change things up... Yes, then exactly. this can happen, right? And, and there are other things in Mainz's favour. So, you know, they're obviously a very fit team. They're sufficiently versatile that... You know, they, they have players that could move into different positions without necessarily having to change otherwise. What, one thing I found really interesting is that their central centre-back is a guy called Edmilson Fernandez, right. who is a young Swiss midfielder who was at West Ham and played as either a central or a right-sided midfielder and is now cropping up at the back for my... I know... I was like, really? Is I had to check that it was the same person. He's six foot three, though, which I guess is quite helpful hey, in that regard. That's why they put me in goal, pal. Um, and it meant that he could carry the ball forwards in the first half quite impressively. But, mm. you know, yes, this is not a game that... And I checked the XG for this game, and, and Hoffenheim absolutely should have won it. Peter Click says, How can I improve my tactical understanding? I watch a lot of football. That's a good start, Peter. But sometimes it feels like I just don't see it. But you know what, Peter? I feel exactly the same. I'll watch football, and for 10 minutes I'll be watching it, and then I'll think, well, what's happened? And what I know what's happened, mm. but I don't know what's happened. I've just been passively watching this. I think that's the mistake. Um, how do you manage to see what's happening on the pitch on a deeper level? I'm going to start uh, with this one. I'm going to answer a little bit for you. I think if you have a certain set of circumstances when you're growing up that, that, <laughs> that lead you to, to view things with a, with a deeply analytical perspective, but without much emotion, a la Mindhunter. Um, when you do come to approach these sorts of things and try to answer these questions, you'll see through the eyes of the killer because you yourself are a killer. Is that right? <laughs> Is that right, Alex? 
I was talking to um, Nick Miller, who has been on this podcast the Mill before. Dog. Uh, Love that and, guy. Uh, and his rights for ESPN and, and the Totally Football show about this yesterday at a thing. And the difference between how different people watch football. And obviously Nick is a, a, a journalist and, and, and he watches it as football is kind of like a, a game of football is like a series of emotional moments, uh, a, a winding together of narrative episodes that end in a result that is set against a wider narrative of what's happening in the championship or, or whatever it is. And that's how he watches football. And it's not how I watch it. Uh. Um, obviously it's different if I'm watching Southampton or if I'm watching Winchester, but by and large, if I'm watching a, a normal game, then I see little kind of pieces mm. moving around a board. I am watching the football. And I, I almost don't necessarily notice if not, not that I don't notice if a goal is scored, but it's, it's not important to me in the same way. Mm. So it's a conclusion has occurred. I, yeah, kind of. That move has finished. And I think, I think that is partly a, a function of how different people's brains work differently. Can I ask and you if in romantic scenarios, first dates, etc., do you, do, you, do you observe it in much the same way as if you're sitting above yourself, <laughs> looking down going, you're not doing a very good job here. You've just insulted her on her appearance um, or I, her personality I would or not her job. do that. No, okay. Um, do go on, carry yeah. on explaining how you watch football. Um, psycho. So I think, yes, I think the, some people will gravitate perhaps towards an emotional engagement. Some people will gravitate towards an analytical engagement, which may be kind of pattern based or, and people are just, people just see stuff in different ways. And what I'm trying to say here is that you can do certain things to help your understanding of it. Yeah. So for example, if you're, if you're about to watch a game that has already happened, like look at the lineup, look at who those different players are, try and match what you know to be the case with what you're seeing played out retrospectively. Question everything. Why is that happening? Right. Why is this happening? Or even if it seems obvious, because it always happens, why is it happening? It can be quite helpful to focus on specific instances, for example. So maybe one of the ways to first start observing player movement is to just really, really concentrate when there's a corner or an attacking free kick, because then you start to see you, it's kind of paused for you. Everyone's jostling for mm. position and then certain things happen and it can be easier to spot certain movements there because it's kind of narrow and focused. Um, obviously read, you know, read people like Jonathan Wilson. I'm reading Michael Cox's second book at the moment, Zonal Marking, which is less tactically specific in the way the mixer was, but talks about kind of broad themes of tactical change, which is really, really interesting. Uh, and these things can be very helpful as well. JJ Bull, who writes in the Telegraph is very good at that stuff. Um, mm. but I guess it kind of depends on what you want to get from, the experience of watching a game, you know, is, is it, is it more important if you're watching a game to embrace that emotional side and to kind of ride that up and down and all oh, that nearly happened or oh, that didn't quite, or to distance yourself from it and be a sociopath? Yeah. I can't answer that question. Well, you have, you just spent five minutes answering it, but no, I, I, I didn't come to a conclusion then. <laughs> hey, thanks, Peter Click. Another great name. This is an advert.
This episode of the TIFO Football Podcast is supported by The Athletic, the best place to read about football online. You can get a 30-day free trial and 50% off an annual subscription by visiting theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO. And not only is it the best place to read about football online, it's now one of the best places to listen to talking about football online. I'm, of course, referencing the, I think, currently 11 new podcasts, football podcasts, that have been released by The Athletic in recent weeks. And I'm going to quickly tell you about three of them now. The first is the Ornstein and Chapman podcast, both eminent professionals, really interesting stuff. Uh, Chapman, fantastic host. Ornstein has all of the inside info, um, and there's a lot of stuff in the first two episodes about Arsenal, for example, because they coincided with the sacking of Unai Emery and discussion around replacements. Really, really worth listening to. Um, The second is zonal marking. The Athletics' Michael Cox and Ali Maxwell break down the tactical and technical details of football past and present, focusing on a single subject each each episode with the help of expert guests. Um, Michael and Ali are both brilliant at their job and those first two episodes have been really interesting as well so I'd highly encourage you to listen to that particularly if you enjoy the tactical aspects of this podcast and the third one is Handbrake Off The Athletics' Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas are alongside Ian Stone to bring you a weekly podcast on Arsenal Football Club They'll be joined by club legend Lee Dixon to discuss some of the most fascinating stories from Arsenal's past every single week as well as expert insight from from inside the Emirates Um, The above is just three shows, there's uh, 11 I think release but perhaps more some some more plan to be released in the future as well um so yeah i hope you can go listen to them they're all freely available you do not have to be an athletic subscriber to listen to the podcasts although in their app it's a really it's got really neat functionality um for downloading and listening to them a bit like the iphone podcasts app that's really useful too um so that's how i've been listening to mine but there you go. They're free for everyone. So do go and have a listen. If you like them, you can, of course, become a subscriber with our 50% off annual subscription code. That's www.theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO. And there's a 30 day free trial with that as well. So you can try it out and see if you like it. If you're not fussed, whatever. But I'm sure that you will be. Anyway, thank you very much. And back to today's podcast. Uh, the next question is from Typical User. What's happening with Everton? They should be in the top seven at least, according to the XG table. But they are 17th. Of course, they dropped into the relegation zone, I think, didn't they? Um, After they lost to Liverpool and after Southampton beat Norwich. So I think they actually might be 18th at the moment. Um, But that's the first first I've heard of their XG being uh, top seven worthy. How do you answer this question, Alex? Um... So, it's it's a tricky one to answer. I think there are two key issues, and I'll try and be unusually concise in answering this question. Um, The first is that Everton look to press very aggressively and high. Their manager was sacked last night, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, And unfortunately, they don't have particularly quick centre-backs, and they don't now have Idrissa Gay, who they sold to PSG. And Statsbomb did a really good article last season about how basically Idrissa Gay was holding Everton together because the rest of the midfield and the forward line were pressing like dervishes. And there was this whole big old space and Idrissa Gay was covering this space he was so on good. his own. He was so good, wasn't um, he? Yeah, he's phenomenal. Um, and 
and he was doing that ahead of fullbacks that push quite high and aggressively and center backs who aren't particularly rapid, like Michael Keane, for example. Um, so that is one obvious answer. They, they press in a way that is not sensible given how slow their center backs are and given the fact they've lost a genuinely world-class defensive midfielder who could cover for that. I swear to God, they've always had slow centre-backs. I'm thinking of uh, Sylvain Distan and Phil Yayelka. Phil Yayelka. Yeah. Jagielka, Yayelka. I mean, Yeri Mina is not... I guess I had John Stones for totally a while. slow, yeah. Um, but then that gives you other defensive issues sometimes. But um, they... The other major issue that Everton have is the balance of the side in an attacking perspective. So you've got someone like Gilfie Sigurdsson, who is a very good creative passer, obviously good at free kicks and long shots and so on. He's not really a deep central midfielder. Um, you have Tom Davis, who is a good central midfielder, but not defensively excellent. Great hair. Great hair. Um, and it was very, very good against Southampton, for example, but... Mm. You know, that was playing against Southampton. I say that with all due respect. Um, you have someone like Alex Iwobi, who was fantastic when he came on against Southampton, but is playing in wide areas. Richarlison, likewise. It seems like when they recruited um, over last summer and possibly even the summer before that, someone tweeted quite wryly the other day, like, uh, you know, remember when we all used to say what would happen if Everton suddenly got given loads of money? Well, you know, this is what happened. They mm. went and bought a number of players that would all sit in the same position. And they didn't buy people yeah. that would give them balance in midfield. Then they lose Gay. And all of a sudden, you've got quite a lot of creative talent but you don't have someone... I mean, Morgan Schneiderling is probably the closest thing they have to that. And for us, he was a very good box-to-box -box player, but he was playing alongside Victor Wanyama in the season that he was really great, who is that very solid defensive presence. So it's kind of really those two problems. It's I guess the issue here, though, is with typical user's question, according to the XG table, right. they should be seven. Sure. So they are creating chances... That were chances that at least are good enough to be worthy of seventh place in terms of that. Well, it depends. Metric. It depends what. So the XG table probably factors in XG for and also XG against. So they might so be defending well. So they might be defending well, but for example, conceding more than their XG against would suggest, which would probably indicate a goalkeeper having a bad time of it. Okay. Um, they might be the other way around and creating yeah. lots of excellent chances, failing to convert them, which is a Southampton problem. Right. I mean, I think Southampton in, in most sort of sensible tables of that nature is up around, you know, 14th, 13th, 12th, something like that. Um, because we don't score enough goals. Uh, right. And, and we got hammered by Leicester. But um XG is just a marker anyway. It's not. It doesn't yeah. mean that they should be. No, the it, top seven. it doesn't mean that. It just indicates that they might be. Have they had diverted they, their chances? Had things had things occurred roughly in line with the historical expectations of that set of things? Yes. Also, can we say? Although, if, can, can I just clarify something about XG from an attacking perspective? Let's say you are. Um, 
you're in in between the kind of six yard box area. The goalkeeper's there and a couple of defenders. And the XG suggests historically that uh, 71 out of 100 strikers have scored from this position, right? So your odds are pretty good. Well, it's, it'd be 71 out of 100 shots. Short shots, yeah. sorry, yeah. But you are shit. Yeah. And the other player that is in that same <laughs> position is Sergio Aguero. Yes. And his XG is the same as yours from yeah. that position. Yeah. There's a bit of an issue there, isn't there? Yes. Because you might be shit. Yes. And I'm not saying this specifically about Everton, but it sounds like I am. No. So I think that um, player quality is, it's either something that is just being incorporated into models or is the recognized issue with XG overall currently because initially my xg would be the same my 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 yeah expect expected goal there right. would be the same as aguero sure and it definitely shouldn't be definitely shouldn't i be. can tell you that no so the first xg models literally just took into account position of the shooter and the body part used so headers tend to have a lower xg i think it's that way around um, because they're slightly harder. I don't know. Um, increasingly, other things have been incorporated into XG models as the sophistication of gathering that data and the incorporation of that data has increased. So, Placement of defenders? Placement of defenders is a crucial one, but also the type of pass being received, uh, the location the pass is coming from. Um, player quality is obviously an element. Now, that's really really hard to factor in and the easiest way probably of i'm going to kill that person in a minute i mean the, what they, are they, they doing it's fine and they won't be able to hear it. i'll cut it all out okay um if you're looking so the way xg models are, are created is by literally going back and watching previous games and working out and coding if a guy shot from here and there was a defender there and a defender there then it was a goal or it was not a goal. And aggregating as much of that information together as you can possibly get so that you generate probabilities of scoring from particular locations in particular circumstances. If you want to then refine that by player quality, you kind of, my expectation would be that you would have to look at data sets from different leagues and then kind of basically weight those data sets by league. So well, what if you just had what if you had all the data specific to the player? There wouldn't be nearly enough. No, no, but let's say in 10 years time wouldn't be nearly enough. Right, because in the span of a player's career there's not enough times where they've been in the same position to to right. make a suggestion. I mean, you know, a team will probably take uh, this is going to be a wild guess, but maybe on average 5 to 10 shots per game. Right. A, a single team. Yeah. So of that single player might yeah. I mean what would you get what, say you have a Victor Wanyama right yeah. who maybe ventures up the pitch and takes a shot once every 10 games yeah. once every 5 games yeah. of which every so often they'll go in yeah. so all of a sudden you're looking at a Victor Wanyama opportunity based on the historic evidence of him which is that one of 5 of his worldies goes in and the others hit the corner flag mm there'd be a disproportionately high XG for that if you're only recording his shots because yeah. they're rare instances and they have 
a disproportionate probability of occurring because they're rare instances. So what you'd have to do instead is maybe say there's a baseline level for championship strikers, championship midfielders, right. Premier League defenders, and then weight individual instances against... So you would say, and that, that even that wouldn't be fair no. because you're still not factoring into account that there is always going to be a Sergio Aguero or a Robert Lewandowski or a Timo Werner who is just absurdly good yeah, and warping at those doing figures. stuff. Right. So instead you're hitting like a, you know, who's the most average striker in the Premier League? Um, like, Kevin is, Doyle. Is he, oh, he's gone now, isn't he's, he? He's gone. He went a long time <laughs> yeah. ago. He was pretty um, average though. But I liked Kevin Doyle. And then you've also got things like, I don't know, think of someone like Ashley Barnes. Right. So Ashley Barnes' headed XG is clearly not the same as, I don't know, even someone like an Aguero or Raheem Sterling, for example, who creates lots of really good opportunities and is a fantastic goal scorer. But he's not Ashley Barnes in the air. Hmm. So how do you weight those things? It's really, really difficult. Okay, well, typical Um, user, I hope you found uh, some interest in that conversation. The next question is from Alex Howroyd. Is looking back on tactical systems from previous decades a good way to come up with new solutions to modern day phenomenons such as tiki-taka and gegen pressing? What do you think? I would say that it it's not necessarily a bad idea to do that. Um, there is a degree to which the uh, historical... Um, tactical systems that we can read about and talk about in books like Inverting the Pyramid or in the Michael Cox book that I mentioned earlier, it's, you know, you're not necessarily getting these all off match footage, for example. So it's hard to know exactly how teams did stuff before the really wide availability of television and video recording of stuff. Mm. Um, Having said that, you know, football is an evolution of things. And for example, teams used to play in a sort of two, three, five system with a couple of that five dropping back slightly. And you can see that in the build-up play of teams like Manchester City sometimes. So there are echoes of things that happened ages ago that happen now because tactics Mm. evolve and things change. Cyclical nature. Can I ask you this specific thing? Mm. It's been said that Pep Guardiola's Manchester City team in some ways resemble a a similarity to a WM formation. Mm. Now, WM was very popular for a very long time in English football, but then presumably something came along and fucked that up. Mm -hmm. So is it possible to look, as Alex says, to look back at that particular period of history where, was it the Hungary? um, That was the Hungary in 54 was the false nine. And and, and England were playing the WM that game? Um, I think they were, weren't probably, they? Probably, yeah. And that was a good example of the false nine system uh, messing, messing with what Yao got. So what yep. if, uh, let's say, Manchester United playing uh, City, well, no, they will have just played the weekend, this is going out, and presumably been decimated. But let's say that they had mm. gone back to look at, the, at that game. Yeah. England v Hungary. 61, did you say? 51? I think it was 54. 54? No. Anyway. In the no, olden it was days. before then. It was in the olden days. I can't remember. It doesn't matter. Okay. But the point is, they could look back at that and go, hey, let's play like Hungary did. Yeah. And just drop Jesse Lingard in the false nine. Yeah. Maybe they would win because yeah. they're repeating history. That sounds like what Alex Howroyd is saying. Right. And and I think that there are, 
there are certainly sensible things to look at. So for example, the thing, uh, is it next week that we've got the um, Mourinho thing coming out or have we done that already? Uh, it comes out, um, it came out yesterday when you're listening to this. Okay, right. So one of the features there is that Mourinho is playing with a back four, but one of those fullbacks is pushing aggressively high, generally speaking, Serge Aurier on the right-hand side, while Ben or at Davis... at least he was when we wrote it. Or at least he was when we wrote it. Yeah. And Ben Davis is tucking in ever so slightly, but there is a degree of maintaining the width. Um, but that they're not playing a back three. The defensive shape is still with a four. So, Well, Jan Vertonghen, though, in a way, in their most recent game since they've been written, yeah. Jan Vertonghen played at, air quotes, left back. Right. And essentially they were playing a back three. And uh, Son Xun Ming was in the kind of wing, left wing position. There was a bit more hybrid. But what's happening on the right? Sergio Rio is banging up top. But I mean, like they played a kind of three, four, one, two In in build up, yes, Yes. absolutely. But then defensively... It was five at the back. Their low block. Oh, no, it was four at the back, was it? Right. So a high weird hybrid thing. My point being hmm. is that this is quite catenaccio in terms of having one fullback that pushes massively aggressively high and one staying back and tucking in a little bit. Hmm. That kind of unbalanced system. Now, what, I'm not saying that that Mourinho has sat there and watched videos of Inter in the 1960s and thought this is a good way of building up. Yeah. And I'm not suggesting that that's necessarily in answer to a particular question, which is what whoever this person who's asked the question is saying. Like, is it a good way of answering that Alex question? Howroyd. Alex Howroyd. Um, so I'm not saying that, that you know, Mourinho's sitting there thinking, well, how do I beat Gagan pressing? Ah, I should watch Inter in the 1960s. I'll go back to the 20th century. Having said that, the fundamentals of football are about the creation of space for players to progress the ball in one direction Mm -hmm. and generally speaking about making the pitch big when you're attacking and small when you're defending. And so there are different ways to be able to achieve that and historical examples, for example, the way that the Dutch in the 1970s pressed, they are things that can be used as examples nowadays, even if other aspects of what they did maybe uh, misunderstood or wouldn't work quite so well or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Um, so you've got this kind of corpus of knowledge and experience. And if you consider every football match as a, you know, a posed question that you have to solve rather than an emotional experience, obviously, mm. um, then you can answer that question in a variety of different ways. And where you get the source for those answers could be way, way back. Yeah. I tell you what, I was listening to... Also, playing Jesse Lingard as a false nine is a good idea. Well, I don't know in his current form. But I was, uh, I was listening to No Question About That, which is... Uh, the, what? The, the, it's, it's called No Question About That. I'm doing an impression of Alex Ferguson. It's uh, Paul, oh. Paul Ansorge uh, and Ed from... They used to be called Rantcast. Oh, is that what that stands for? They've just changed their name, yeah. yeah. NQ80, No Question About That. Uh, I think it was a thing that Alex Ferguson said regularly. Right. Anyway, they were talking ahead of the... It's a good podcast, by the way. It's a Man United podcast, but you should go and listen to it. Paul's good. Um, They were talking ahead of the Tottenham game last week. And uh, Paul thought that Mourinho would have been 
so delighted as to be giddy at the fact that he had a player in Jan Vertonghen who was could play left back and centre back at the same time, a bit like the kind of Branislav Ivanovic style thing. Mm. And uh, we've seen that play out, but it didn't work, did it? This is never. Hello, TIFO listeners. How does free beer sound to you? Mm, yes, please. As a loyal listener of the show, we'd like to reward you with just that free beer. Thanks to our friends at Beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight free exclusive craft beers from around the world. All you've got to do is head to www.beer52.com forward slash TIFO and cover just £4.95 for the postage. What's more, TIFO football podcast listeners get two extra free beers. Eight plus two. That's a total of ten free beers. Claim this before the 17th of December to guarantee that they arrive in time for Christmas. Mmm, delicious Christmas drinking. Did you know that Beer 52 are beer pioneers? They traverse the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest small batch breweries planet Earth has to offer. No surprise then that they are the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Themes have included Germany, Korea, Norway, South Africa, California, Finland and many more. But they haven't forgotten their roots, because they're not robots. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is they don't hold you to ransom. There's no lock-in, and you can leave any time. So just to be clear, you are signing up to a monthly subscription, the first month of which is free, save for the £4.95 packaging. And if you want to cancel before it's re-upped for next month, you're perfectly welcome to do so. So just go to beer52.com forward slash TIFO to get your first case of eight beers for free. And don't forget, TIFO football customers get an extra two unmissable beers for free. Beer52 as in 52.com forward slash TIFO. That's the word beer, then the number's 52.com forward slash TIFO. Thank you for listening. Anyway, one last question here from Clive Lee. Um, we've got about uh, two minutes to answer this one. Sorry, oh. Clive. Um, how will tactics be developed in future years? Will goalkeepers ever be considered as outfield players? <laughs> Ridiculous. I mean, obviously not, because well, that would require a change in the laws of the game. Having just discussed the Mainz-Hoffenheim game, though. However, well... Didn't game, work, though, did it? Yeah, but they're still not considered an outfield player. Well, having said what that, if again... if you sit at home and consider them an outfield player? Without, how many people need to consider them personally an outfield player? This is like how words join language. I was talking to someone about this last night. Right. You mm. know, if they're Definitely. used a certain number of times in a certain number of newspapers and magazines, they right. enter yeah. official language. I, I had this conversation with someone the other day. What, how, how do you define stupid? If I call large numbers of the population stupid... What does that is that is that bad? Depending on how I, think, I define stupid, I think it reflects badly on you. Is that is that allowed? <laughs> Judgmental, unpleasant. <laughs> it is unpleasant. Um, yeah, I mean, okay, goalkeepers playing outfield is an interesting point because you can look at before the laws of the game changed and goalkeepers weren't allowed to bounce the ball. You'd have someone like is it Lee Richmond Roos or Richmond Lee Roos who was back at Sunderland mm. in the you know nineteen tens, nineteen twenties or something, mm. bouncing the ball up to the halfway line and throwing it. So there are there are rule uh, law changes that that make things different to how they were. Uh, the back pass rule is the other obvious example. You have goalkeepers who were very proactive, like Stanley Menzo at Ajax, well before the idea of Neuer and a sweeper keeper and blah, blah, blah. So here's a good example of how 
tactics evolve, but also well, this season, something that might seem new isn't necessarily new. And there are examples of people who used to do stuff right. way, way back. I see. Um, you're talking about the goal kick starting rule where the defenders can drop in, yeah? Yeah. Um, so that obviously affects the way that teams can build up from the back, mm. encourages pressing or discourages pressing, depending on how you look at it. Um, Create space in the middle. Yeah. So obviously one of the things to factor in that is an unknowable is uh, law changes. Um, there was another question I think that a listener put in that something about should penalties be devalued? Right. And I've seen discussion of this before, but I think in the res- after the Arsenal Norwich game where that penalty was retaken because Max Aaron's cleared it having encroached. Yeah. And that sense of the unfairness of penalties in some instances and, you know, should they be further back? If a goalkeeper touches it, should the ball be considered dead? All of these sorts of things. Mm. They are all possible outcomes and most of the law changes that have occurred have occurred to make the game more entertaining. I say bring back golden goal. Uh, That was a good example of another one. So there will always likely be tactical responses to law changes and we can't anticipate those because we don't know what laws will change. Golden goal would would have huge tactical ramifications, wouldn't it? In a knockout scenario, extra time. Yeah. It was vital that you scored the first goal and there was no... Penalties. I mean, I always thought golden goal was a great idea, mm. but for exactly that reason that you does suddenly it, does it favor certain teams over others, or um, does it? For example, it would it would essentially destroy the hope of team who? who I mean, we saw this a lot when we watched the Russia World Cup. Mm. There were numerous games where it's quite clear, whether because players were fatigued or because they just weren't as good as the opposition, that they were holding on out in extra time, waiting for penalties, which they would consider their better yeah. opportunity. Would it, yes. would it, would it prior favour? I mean, I suppose it's favouring better teams are a bad thing. I think in that, that way, probably so. But, but look at the Mainz-Hoffenheim game that we discussed earlier. You know, that, that's an instance of a team being in a position where they have to sit back but because of the way that they're defending and because of the way that they can break and the way the team is coming onto them, mm. they end up winning that game. So you're saying in Despite goal, having sat back, a tactic might be to deliberately to get a player get a sent, sent off. off. And be Mainz. Yeah, right, you, we've got to finish up now. Mainz Clive Lee, win the World Cup. I hope you enjoyed the answer to that question. Sorry you came last. It's just how it was sent through to me via email. And who sent those through to you via email? You did. So Clive, it's my fault. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for listening. Uh, next week... I'm joined by the uh, the delightful Uri Levy, who's uh, who wrote a script. Well, actually, Mr. we took Babagol. That from, yeah, he's from the Babagol Babagol website. It's a, f- a football website which writes about South America and the Middle East. Um, and we converted one of their scripts a couple of years ago about uh, the infamous Turki El Sheikh uh, and when he bought Pyramids FC. The uh, well, they weren't called that then; they mm. were called something else. Uh, the Egyptian football club he turned into Pyramids FC and built this huge kind of media. Uh, conglomerate around. And he's so, back. Huh? He's back. He's he, back. Uh, Udi El Maria. He's back again. Yeah. Uh, Turkey's back. Tell your friends. Anyway, listen. Okay. Uh, Uri's here next week. Gonna, I'm really excited to talk to him. Uh, a well-travelled man from Israel. So we'll chat to him and, uh, yeah. See you. See you then. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.
At American University, we don't just hope for change, we create it. We don't just dream of a better world, we make it a reality. With a graduate degree from AU, you'll access expert faculty and connections throughout DC to develop skills and experience to turn your passion into purpose. And that purpose can make all the difference in your career. Discover the difference a degree makes at American.edu slash gradschool.